If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and follow along. I'll be reading in the New American Standard Bible, verses 3 through 11. Paul writes, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that a law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for ungodly and sinners, for unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Ever since the church was born at Pentecost some 2,000 years ago, it has been waging a war. It has been in a constant battle, a battle for truth. The church has always fought for the truth. And the war that we are waging today against the principalities and powers and world forces of darkness and the spiritual places and the heavenly realms is a battle for truth. God has given us His truth and His word, and He has called the church to fight in order to retain the standard of sound words, to guard the truth, to treasure it, and to keep it. The church, by definition, is a pillar and support of the truth. That is what the truth is for to build us up. And the church builds us up and we hold up the truth in the process. And Satan knowing this, Satan knowing that the truth is so important in the church, has made efforts from the very beginning to attack the church in the area of truth. He wants to corrupt the bride of Christ. He wants to lead people astray. He wants to damn people to hell. He is the father of lies and speaks nothing but lies. And even in the first century, Satan was busy trying to introduce heresies into the church. And our text today is one such example. In verses 3 through 11, Paul is going to address the aspects of false teachers which help us spot them, which help us understand why they do what they do, their motives, their intentions, and the evil um, forces which are behind what they teach. We're going to see that in these verses 3 through 11 and then later on in the book and various other places. False teaching is a frequent theme both in first and second Titus and Timothy, or first and second Timothy and Titus rather, as men are always being 
led astray from the truth by Satan, tempted to grab onto something which may be close, but which in actuality is an imposter. And false teachings were introducing these strange doctrines, myths, genealogies, fruitless discussions. They wanted to be teachers of the law. They were conceited, argumentative, looking for power, looking for control, looking for money, looking for pleasure of all different sorts. And this is why Paul begins this letter with this instruction. If you look at verse 3, he says, As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. And this is kind of interesting. Paul didn't start out the letter, Timothy, how you been doing? You know, Timothy, I mean, you know, what's going on? I mean, how you feeling these days? You know, how about the Mets? No, Paul was on his way to Macedonia, a uh, country which is uh, kind of uh, northwest across the Aegean Sea from Ephesus. And he said, Timothy, remember, upon my departure from Macedonia, I told you to remain on at Ephesus. Paul had spent three years pouring his life into the Ephesian church, teaching them publicly and from house to house, admonishing them with tears, instilling in them, ingraining in them, hardening them in the truth of God's word. And he knew that Satan would raise up savage wolves from within and without to attack the church. So he left Timothy there. The word urge here might be translated to beg, to beseech, to entreat, or to implore. Paul just said, Timothy, man, I beg you, just stay there in Ephesus. And we'll be able to find out why he had to urge him so much. Timothy was timid. He was meek. He wasn't your type A personality, your in-your-face type of guy. He didn't like confrontation. He was wavering. He was, he was kind of withdrawing. And Paul is seeing this incredible church and this incredible location that he has poured so much energy into. And so he says, Timothy, stay there. Stay there. Stay there. Timothy needed to be reminded of this, and the church at Ephesus needed to be reminded of this. The church at Ephesus needed to know that the Apostle Paul wanted Timothy there to teach the truth. And there was a very important reason why Timothy needed to stay there, and that's the first point in our outline, doctrinal errors you should avoid. There is a little Greek word called a hina purpose clause. It's usually translated that or so that or in order that. And Paul says this, I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus so that. So we know that when we see that little word, he, we are going to get the reason why Timothy was supposed to stay there at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. And that is the reason. That is why Paul wanted Timothy there. There were problems in the Ephesians church. False teaching had crept in. And this is pretty amazing. I mean, you think after Paul invested so much time in that church, after, you know, Aquila and Priscilla were there, after Apollos was there, after Titus would be sent there, 
that there's still false teaching creeping in. Turn to Acts chapter 20. This really gives us some good context for what Paul is telling Timothy to do as one of the elders at the church of Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, Paul has traveled through the area. And he's going to Miletus, which is south of Ephesus. And so he sends somebody up to Ephesus and says, go up there and tell the elders, come on down. Just come on down because um, I need to talk to you about some things. And so Paul basically has the elders from the Ephesian church come down and he gives them kind of their last charge before he goes off to who knows where to do who knows what God wants him to do. And so he's there instructing them. And look at verse 28 of Acts 20. Paul says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. I guess the elders hadn't been on guard enough. They hadn't overseen the flock enough. They were not alert enough because false doctrine had crept into the church of Ephesus. So he tells Timothy to stay there to instruct certain men not to teach strange or false doctrines. The word instruct is a, might be translated a command as the NIV has it or charge as the King James Version has it. It means to communicate an order, to charge, to prescribe, to insist on. Paul is telling Timothy, listen, Timothy, I insist that you stay there. And this kind of tells us what's happening with Timothy. Timothy's going, can I have another assignment? I mean, can, can I go someplace easy? Paul says, no, you stay there. It's a very strong word when he says to command them or instruct them, prescribe to them that they not teach strange doctrines. That word is a very strong word. It is the same word that Jesus used in Mark 10.5 and or, or Matthew 10.5 and Mark 6.8 when he tells the disciples to do things before sending them out. It's the same word that the Sanhedrin used in Acts chapter 4 when they told the disciples, stop preaching in Jesus' name. That's how forceful it is. Of course, the disciples said, sorry, we have to obey God. But it's a very aggressive word. And notice that Paul lists three kinds of categories or, or types of false teaching in the text. The first one is strange doctrines. Instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. This is kind of an overarching term. This is kind of like the big term. This covers everything. Anything that deviates from the truth. The word strange is strange doctrines is really one word in the Greek. It is really a compound of heteros and didaskalos. Heteros is like, you know, heterosexual, different. 
Okay, two different people, male and female. Well, this is heteros didaskalos, that is, didaskalos teaching, heteros a different teaching, an erroneous teaching, a false teaching. Instruct them not to do any sort of false teaching, strange doctrine. And that's what his first thing out of his mouth is to his beloved child in the faith. And this also tells us that even before the New Testament was completed, there was a standard, standard teaching in the church. There was standard doctrine that the church had to conform to. And the apostles had taught it, that their disciples knew what it was, and they were supposed to conform to that standard. Timothy knew what the standard was, of course, because he traveled with Paul for so long. He heard him teach it, and he knew what was right. That was not the problem. The problem was is he wasn't standing up against the false teaching that was creeping in. Now, the third and or the second and third categories, if you look there, you'll see he says, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Myths and endless genealogies. Commentators aren't really sure what these myths are. There's uh, quite a bit of debate. Um, some people th- think they're Jewish myths, and some people think they're Gnostic myths, which um, both, uh, doesn't matter which ones they were, were kind of merged with biblical truth. Um, an example of uh, you know, a myth would be uh, promoting some sort of uh, false view of creation, taking some of the Greek mythology about creation, kind of merging it with Scripture. Or maybe to add genealogies, which really are never mentioned in the Bible, which someone invented, and then teaching those genealogies of which they are true. For instance, you know, the, some, there were genealogies about uh, all of Adam and Eve's children. You know, not just Cain and Abel. I mean, every one of them. Uh, there were um, myths about Noah's children. Every one of them. Or all of the people who left from uh, Palestine, uh, the 12 tribes and their children and their maids and servants, all 70 of them who went to Egypt. You know, every one of them. And see, these were just false. They were fictitious. And people were taking these things for nothing more than just boasting purposes. You'll say, hey, I just want you to know uh, I'm in uh, King David's line. I am his uh, quadruply to the tenth power nephew. Or somebody say, well, I just want you to know that uh, Aaron the high priest is in my line. It's like, so what? So what? You see, at first, it was important to the Jews to know what tribe they were from. Because when they were coming back from captivity, like if you read in Ezra and Nehemiah, they were so concerned about what tribe they were from, and rightly so. They needed to know. They needed to know what tribe. Why? Because you're coming back to the land. You gotta, first, you've got to know if you're a Levite, because if you are, your inheritance is the Lord. And you better start serving in the temple. But if you're not from the tribe of Levi, you need to know where you're from so you can go back and receive the inheritance of your family, your tribe. You need to know what plot of land is yours. So they needed to know. But the Jews had just, I mean, they had gone ballistic on this. I mean, they were, you know, trying to just figure out all sorts of minutiae. Well, after Christ died, after he fulfilled the sacrificial system, after the whole um, 
temple and its, all of its uh, worship system was basically done away with and fulfilled in Christ, there was no need to basically, you know, pair off to decide who's going to carry this or hold these, you know, snifters or whatever. You didn't need to know that anymore. Because God took both Gentile and Jew and made them into one new man, which is the church. But the pursuit of one's genealogies was capturing some people. It was diverting them. It was taking them off the track. And people were saying, well, I'm related to so-and-so, and I'm related to so-and-so. You know, and I hear that, and people say, you know, well, <laughs> a little name-dropping, you know, hey, you know, I know this big wig. I always like to say, oh, you know what, so am I. And I like to just see their face, you know, and do it for fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, so am I. And when they say, oh, really? Yes, uh, we have a relative, uh, Adam. And then uh, they're looking at me, and I say, yeah, and we're also related to Noah and his family. (laughs) People, you are related to every single person in this room. I don't care what color skin they have. I don't care what their their, national origin is, where their grandparents came from. Every single one of us is related by blood to one another. And one of the times that, it was pretty humorous. I, I uh, was applying for this home loan when we were um, buying a house in Boise, and, and uh, our mortgage guy's na- last name was Hughes. And so he, whenever he had anybody, and, you know, Hughes, he had to make sure he wasn't doing this for a relative. And so he sent me this form asking questions to make sure I'd kind of write this little thing to affirm that I was not related to him. So I wrote him two responses, one which was the truth and the other which was an error which they wanted to hear, which he gave them. (laughs) But the truth was, and I put down in this letter, you know, to whom it may concern, I, Jack Hughes, am related to J. Hughes by blood. We both are related to Adam, the first man created. (laughs) We are both related to Noah and his descendants. Not only that, because of our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all united by faith as Christians, believing in the one true God. And so I gave him that one, and then I gave him the false one that they took. (laughs) So Paul tells Timothy to instruct certain men not to be paying attention to these geologies. Just quit doing it. Don't be giving all this energy and effort into trying to, um, you know... Decide what is true from these myths. In Titus 3.9, Paul would tell Titus this, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And there is always a danger when you take biblical material and you merge it with any sort of fiction. There's always a danger. You know, as soon as all of a sudden vegetables start speaking... And it's no longer a huge image, it's a chocolate bunny. There's always some confusion there if you don't have discernment. We see this, for example, in the writings of Frank Peretti. He is a master storyteller, if you've ever read any of his books. A great writer. He has biblical themes in his books, but people, his books are fiction. Fiction. That means they are not true. 
And Frank Peretti takes these biblical themes, but he goes beyond what the Bible says. He almost goes into the place of science fiction. In some places, he actually contradicts the scriptures, but his books are not written to be systematic theologies. They're fiction. But what's interesting is some people don't know that. I mean, I have actually read articles in magazines where they will quote Frank Peretti's book as kind of like a scriptural cross-reference, as if it had some sort of authority. And this is amazing. It is amazing. The fiction part, the myth part, gets mixed up with the truth, and the result is that false doctrine creeps into the church. So Paul tells Timothy, listen, these Gnostic myths, these Jewish myths, these these truths which are fiction, which are being merged with the Bible and have biblical themes, get rid of them. Don't even pay attention to them because all they're going to do is cause people to wrangle about the white spaces of their Bible. So, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? How many angels can you fit into a Coke can? I mean, who cares? These are things that, you know, seminary students like to talk about. So what was God thinking before the, he created the earth and the eons pass when he chose to elect the uh, offending sinners? Uh, and, uh, you know, what, what were his motives and what was his intent? And, you know, you start, if it's not in the Bible, we don't know. But yet, a lot of times, Satan introduces these, these myths, these fictitious views of men which are all in the white pages, and that's all the church focuses on. Pretty soon, it's all dividing, not over the truth, not over what we are to fight for and commanded to fight for. The people are worrying about, you know, the color of the carpet or the order of the service or the style of the music or whatever. Things which the Bible doesn't address. And this is one of his ways of keeping the church ineffective because people are, I mean, they have definitive, definitive views on things the Bible doesn't even mention. I mean, they will die on their, you know, preference. But then when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to damning heresies, it's like, oh, well, yeah, that's, that's old stuff. Yeah, let, that, let somebody else deal with that. But I'm telling you, man, we've got to have green carpet in here. I love green. The church at Creed had the same kind of problems going in it. And the application here is crystal clear. The elders of this church specifically, and all of us in general, need to be looking out for error. And when you're in a class or when you're seeing somebody teach and you see some sort of false doctrine being taught, you just go to them and instruct them not to teach it anymore. When Paul was talking to Titus in Titus 1, verses 10 and 11, he said this, For there have been many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach. Notice what he said. They must be silenced. He doesn't say, oh, well, be kind to them. Just let them keep doing their error. I mean, you know, they'll figure it out eventually. No. He says, Titus, these Jews, he says they're mostly of the house of the circumcision, 
must be silenced. Tell them to quit sharing their Jewish myths and genealogies around the church. Recently, just to give you an example of this, Gwen Shamblin, who was the founder of the Way Down Workshop, a uh, woman who has done just incredible ministry in the area of helping people lose weight, helping them to learn self-control, helping them to learn how to trust in God and read the scriptures and develop discipline in their life, all things which are good, has come out with a public statement rejecting the Trinity. Rejecting that Jesus is God as in Jehovah, Yahweh. As a matter of fact, she's teaching that there are two gods, that God the Father and God the Son are two distinct divine beings. She's teaching polytheism. And someone might ask, well, you know, Jack, I mean, come on, she's a dietitian. I mean, she's not a theologian. I mean, she's just trying to get people thin, to lose some weight, to learn self-control, to learn those disciplines they need to learn to... to Avoid any temptation. Oh, that's all the good. You know, I've read um, some of her material. I've looked at her study materials. I even watched some videos. You know, the hairdo as much, but I, I watched them. <laughs> I listened to some tapes. I, I've seen it. I've listened to it. I've heard it. And you know what? When I looked, I didn't see anything I disapproved of. I thought it was all good. And believe me, man, I, my filter is down there real thin. But hey... She's come up now and is teaching a heresy of the most severe kind. And let me explain why. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 14, 6? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now let me ask you this. Who is me? Who is Jesus? Can you get to heaven Through an imposter Jesus? Can you get to heaven through a fake Jesus? A Jesus which really isn't the Savior Jesus? No. People, this is critical. I mean, she says that nowhere in the Bible does Jesus ever claim to be Yahweh. Now, let me just give you one verse. John 8.24, Jesus speaking to the uh, the Pharisees, says this. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, this is the ago me, the Greek equivalent of what is called the ineffable tetragrammaton, the I am of the burning bush. He says, unless you believe that I am the eternally existing one, Yahweh, you will die in your sins. He says it before and he says it after. This is an I am sandwich. He says it three other times in the passage, too. He says, before Abraham was born, I am, ego emi, Yahweh. Jesus called himself the I am, the eternally existing God of the burning bush. It wonders why they tried to stone him, because he made himself equal with God. And see, if you have taken Jesus and you have substituted him for a different Jesus, and now you're believing in this Jesus to save you, you will die in your sins. Because there is only one name under heaven by which men must be saved, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God of the burning bush. 
And I know that many people have been helped by her, and I know that much of her material is good. But when she started to become a theologian, it's bad, real bad. And so now, instead of saying, well, let me study this more, she has put her foot down harder. Nelson has jerked her contract. The Women of Faith Ministries has booted her, and now she's starting her own denomination, the remnant. It's scary. And this is exactly what Paul warned against in Acts 20.30. When he was speaking to those Ephesian elders and he said, And from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And the big question we need to ask ourselves is, How in the world are, are we supposed to spot all of these false doctrines? I mean, I'm not, you know, the theologian. I mean, I don't know. I mean, what do I need to do? since it's one of my responsibilities as a member of this congregation. Well, first, you need to know the truth. You need to know what the Bible says, and you need to know what the Bible teaches as a whole. I'm not saying that you need to have your, your favorite verse that you like to camp on, and when people show you other verses, you kind of go, la, 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 not listening. You know, it always amazes me when um, you know, I'm talking with people, and they say, oh, yeah, but this verse says this. And I go, that's true, and Paul was saying this or whatever. And I say, well, look, look at these scriptures over here. Oh, yeah, but this verse says this, as if God's word contradicts itself. The Bible teaches what it teaches as a whole, not what just a verse teaches. You have to understand what the Bible as a whole teaches, and that's why there's colleges and seminaries and Bible studies and preachers to teach us what the Bible as a whole says. God's truth is like uh, white blood cells. They protect you from doctrinal infection. And if you aren't constantly being nourished on the words of the faith, then you become susceptible to infection. I mean, you can have error prated in front of you and just, you don't even see it. This is why God spoke to Moses even way back. After giving the law, he told Moses... And do, or told the people through Moses in Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. When Job's friends were picking on him, I said, Job, you know, you blew it, man. You sinned, dude. I mean, you, you really blew it. And Job said, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. He said, yeah, you had to have blown it. And Job said this in Job 23.12, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That is how severe Job was. It makes you wonder why he was called a blameless man, upright in all of his ways. It wasn't because he you know, just read daily bread every other day. He was saturating himself in the scriptures. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 119.11, Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's why Paul told the Colossians in 3.16 to let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. It's why he told Timothy and Titus to take pains with these things, to be absorbed in these things, to give attention to these things. Why? Because when we know the truth, then Error is just obvious. I mean, it is so crystal clear, we just see it. When you have something and you've studied something thoroughly and some error comes along, it's just like, oh yeah. But man, if you've never studied gold, if you don't know anything about gold, then you fall for iron pyrite every time. I remember camping one time and 
when I was young up in the Cespi and I was up there and we found some, you know, gold. And uh, so, you know, we're picking it up out of the sand and we got a little bat and we're running back to camp. We're rich, we're rich. <laughs> Dad, look. Iron pyrite. <laughs> so here I am today. But truth is like a vaccine which inoculates you from error and deception. If you don't have truth, if you don't know the truth, then it's like you have some sort of autoimmune deficiency problem. And just anything that comes along can just take you out. Secondly, not only do you need to know the truth, you need to examine everything carefully. Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, but examine everything carefully. It is a command and hold on to that which is good. You examine everything carefully. You know what he's telling them to be? Be Dr. New Picky. Be fanatic. Look at everything carefully. Watch, study, everything. Examine everything carefully. We don't have time to go into all those words, but believe me, it's, he's saying strain it through a very fine grid. Everything you hear and hold on to that which is good. A command directed not just at pastors, but the entire church. And this requires discernment. You've got to be able to know truth from error. That's why you have to know the truth so you can see the error. And what's interesting is this is so important in the church that God has actually gifted certain people with the gift of discernment. You know, I know who they are because they talk to me all the time. They're complaining. <laughs> but, you know, it's a good complaint. It's like, uh, you know, I just... Man, you know, I just, uh, you know, I heard somebody teaching this one little thing, and uh, I, I, that's not right, is it? It's like, mm, no, that doesn't sound real good. Well, you know, I, I was just wondering, and then, you know, two weeks later, you know, I was listening to the radio, and um, I heard somebody say, you know, it's like, you know, I was listening to this guy on TV, and, you know, they just, they're, they're bothered. And I'm just going, you know, this person's got the gift of discernment. He just does. And God has given some people those gifts so that we can be protected from false doctrine. Listen to what 1 John 4, 1 says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He says, test the spirits. And some people say, oh, that's the people who can look behind in the angelic realm and see whether they're angels or demons. It's like, no, no, no. He says, test the spirits because many false prophets. It's the prophets and their teaching that are the spirits that we need to test. That's why he calls the gift of discernment in 1 Corinthians 12.10, the discerning of spirits. And some people are specially gifted to help protect the church. And that is why Jesus said in Matthew 7.15 concerning false prophets, be on your guard. Stay aware. Beware of false teachers. It's why we read in Luke 12, 57, when uh, Jesus is just rebuking the Pharisees because, you know, they spent all this time saying, well, look at the sky tonight. Uh, obviously, you know, red sky in the morning and sailors take warning. And, uh, you know, they're into their little discerning of the sky. And Jesus says, listen, you can discern the sky, but you can't even judge what is right according to the scriptures. 
We are called to discernment. And for hundreds of years, merchants have had this little slab of rock, a a piece of granite or other hard, hard rock called a touchstone next to their places of business. And when somebody would come in with a silver coin or a gold coin, they would grab that coin and they would set it on the touchstone and get a little hammer and whack it. They would whack it because they'd want to see what was inside the coin. They would want to see whether it was just a piece of, you know, a lead blank with a little bit of gold on the outside or silver or a piece of steel with, you know, a gold outside. And so they would strike it to determine its genuineness. It was a touchstone. And in the church, the touchstone, the granite slab, is the immovable word of God. It is your Bible. And you take things when you hear them, when you read them, and you lay it on to what the Scriptures teaches, and then you take discernment, and you take uh, um, you know, careful inquiry, and you strike it, you judge it, to see whether it's true. And if it's not true, then you don't take it, because it's not right. And this is how error is kept out of the church. We watch, we focus, we make sure that things don't creep in. Now, the consequences of doctrinal error, we're just going to get into that a little bit this morning. We'll see more later. Is the second point. After Paul reminds Timothy that the very reason he was to stay on in Ephesus was to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines or pay attention to myths or genealogies, He describes them as teachings which give rise, notice what the text says, which give rise to mere speculation. What is that? The word speculation means questionings, controversies. You know, as soon as you depart from what the Bible says and you're in the white spaces, I mean, who wins? An argument. Whoever yells most. That's all. He says, man, this is just a bunch of, you know, angels fit into the Coke can and... You know, do Adam and Eve have belly button type stuff? I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, why even waste your time? And questions like these are fascinating, they're captivating, they're interesting, yet they're fruitless and they're worthless and they only cause people to divide themselves and spend energy on things rather than focusing on that which has eternal significance, which is Jesus Christ and his truth, which we are to dwell in richly. And this is why Paul told Timothy to preach the word in 2 Timothy 4.2. Right after, he says, preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. In the next two verses, read this. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Epithumia, their lusts, their passions, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's incredible. You know, it's amazing to me that people come into my office and, and uh, you know, they're wanting some counsel. They really aren't wanting their counsel. They want me to itch their ear. You say, well, you know, I'm living in this adulterous relationship or I'm, or I'm you know, um, living with my girlfriend and, you know, I'm in fornication and, you know, this and that. And, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, what you think. <laughs> and I just, you know, it's like, well, it really doesn't matter what I think, but let me tell you what God says. Well, in in Galatians 5, it says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in Ephesians 5, it says those people who practice those things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And in 1 Corinthians 6, it says those people who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's what God says. And you know what they say? 
I can see this is a judgmental church. And then they go on. They go on to that other church where the pastor will tell them, well, it's okay. And so they seek out teachers in accordance with their own lust to tell them what they want to hear. You see, when you depart from what the Bible says, you enter a realm of worthless and fruitless speculation. When the Bible says something and you say, yeah, I know what it says, but I want to believe the myth, you are believing a myth. You are believing fiction, a lie. You have been duped. And the consequences are tragic. Now, what about the goal of false teachers? Look at the end of verse 4. Paul contrasts the consequences of false teaching with the goal. He says that it produces speculations rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. In this final verse, we discover the goal of these teachers. The administration of God, that's kind of, the administration word is a hard word to translate. They don't know what it means, uh, how to translate it specifically. It means kind of like stewardship or administration or God's work. It's just what's God's doing, however you want to translate that. They, they, their goal is to stop what God's doing or hinder what God's doing, his administration. You know, it's believe a lie. You know, every object, uh, every faith has an object. All faith has to have an object. You can't believe in nothing. Every bit of faith we have has some sort of object. It doesn't even need to be real. I mean, you can believe in Santa Claus. He comes down the chimney and flies away in reindeers. I mean, you can believe whatever you want. You can believe falsehood, fictitious falsehood, as an object of faith. But every faith has some object. And this is what is so damning about these kind of things. They bring stuff into the church that people grab onto. They have faith in them, but there's no substance there. They have nothing to do with Jesus Christ and Him crucified or the Word of God. They're just things to hold on to. Horoscopes and fortune cookies, things like that. And all these things people around the world place their faith in. And is it a distraction? It is a deception. It is a diversion away from the absolute essentials of what we should be focusing on, which is loving one another according to the truth of God's word and worshiping God in all that we do by offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God according to his word. And Satan will first try to keep people unsaved. He will do everything he can. But, you know, when God saves you, he's, it's over. He can't stop it. So then he wants to keep you ignorant. So he will try and get you to do anything or study anything as long as it's not the truth. And then when you finally get a passion, he wants to divert you. He wants to keep diverting you away. I mean, if you've ever studied your Bible, and you know what I mean. You know, you're thinking about everything but what the text says. Why? Because Satan wants to tempt you. He wants to lead you astray from what God wants you to focus on. He wants you to have strong convictions about things that don't matter. He wants you to die on things that don't matter. The color of the carpet and things like that. And then the other stuff, you know, you know, the doctrine and stuff. I mean, we got a statement of faith for that. And then people don't even know what they believe or why they believe it. And so when Satan does divert our attention away from these things, he is really promoting 
what we will find out in chapter 4, the doctrines of demons. Demons promoting false doctrine. John Owen, one of the greatest theologians who has ever lived, said this, Satan labors might and main by false teachers who try to trick, delude, and forever undo the precious souls of men. And as a church, all of us need to keep watch. All of us need to be on guard. All of us need to examine everything carefully and hold on to that which is good. We are all to be watchdogs, especially the leaders. When we see error, we don't ignore it. We don't brush it under the table. We instruct those who are in error to stop teaching the error. How can you say you love somebody if you let them continue to teach error? How can you say you love God if you will not obey what he tells you to do? Secondly, if you are tempted to not say anything, remember the consequences. You will basically be participating by abdicating what God says you need to do. You are participating in the spread of the false doctrine by not saying anything. Just make sure before you go lopping off someone's head that you know what you're talking about. I mean, don't go to them with, you know, well, I was told when I was little. Make sure you know from the scriptures what the Bible says before you go confronting somebody. But if you know, if you know it's true, then make sure you go to them. And third, remember that this is a spiritual battle. That Satan is working behind the scenes to damn people to hell, to deceive them, to render them ineffective to render them confused or just on their horse, riding in all directions at one time. They don't even know where they're going, but they're busy. And as a church, we need to know that these things are normal. Satan will continue to try and infiltrate the church, both from without and from within. It's to be expected, it's normal, and we have to deal with it as a standard course of action. And next week, we will learn about the goal of our instruction in contrast to the doctrinal error that these men were teaching. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your instructions and your word. Help us to be bold and courageous. Help us to remember that the most loving thing we can do towards you and towards other people is to obey your word with a whole heart and a willing mind. Father, I ask that each of us would examine our own hearts. Father, we would all be watchmen on the wall, that we might keep this church pure and chaste, a glorious bride, which gives you maximum glory. Amen.